begin Ecclesiastes 8, 2 through 17. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, where man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were, in, and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be, will, will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is God's word for us today. About 15 years ago, I had the privilege of going on a missions trip to Cambodia. And um, it was a fascinating trip. The leader of the trip was a very interesting man. He had actually been born in Cambodia as a child and grew up there. But when, uh, if you're familiar with uh, the communist revolution in Cambodia, where Pol Pot was the leader and there was this army called the Khmer Rouge and they came and they just had utterly devastated the country, killed millions and millions of people. And uh, this missionary, his name was Paul, he was a boy at that time. His family was killed. He had to physically travel across the country to Thailand, where he spent several years in a refugee camp, and then he was transported to the United States, where he grew up. And then at the age of about 30, he decided to go back to Cambodia as a missionary. And uh, if you know, the, the, the Communist Revolution in Cambodia virtually wiped out Christianity, um, the Christianity that had been growing in a small way for about 70 years. But uh, since then, uh, things have really changed. The church is vibrant and growing, and I was able to visit churches all throughout the country of Cambodia 
um, that, that Paul had been instrumental in planting. And um, I remember talking to many of the pastors in Cambodia. Some of them had, were older, had grown up in the Khmer Rouge in that time of, uh, of the communist revolution. I remember one older man in particular, he said, when I was a boy, I was forced to serve in the army. I was forced to kill people. He later became a Christian, later became a pastor, planted a church. And I, I remember asking him uh, at the time, what do you think about your current leaders? You know, Cambodia has a king and a prime minister, kind of like England. I said, what do you think about your current rulers? And he said something I'll never forget. He said, we have a saying in Cambodia, all rulers are bad. Some are good bad and some are bad bad. <laughs> he said, our current leaders are good bad, so they're okay. Now, to me, that was really pessimistic. I didn't have that view of political leaders at the time, right? I, uh, but I understood these are people who have experienced things much differently than I have. And I would say, over the years, as I've watched politics more and more, I'm starting to lean more in that direction, you know? Um, it's something we can be very pessimistic about. And so we ask the question, are there, you know, are there good, good leaders in the world? Certainly there are, right? Well, who would, who would you consider to be the best ruler ever? When I think of that question, apart from Jesus, of course, I think of David. King David, right? He was a man after God's own heart. God took him from being a very poor shepherd boy, exalted him to the position of king. He wrote several psalms, portions of our scripture. Certainly, he is one of the examples of, of a good, good ruler. And yet, when we read his story, aren't we discouraged to read about things like Uriah and Bathsheba? I mean, this man, David, used his kingly power to have a man killed so that he could take his wife. He had in his own family, one of his sons raped one of his daughters. And the, the, the brother was so upset with this and so upset that David didn't do anything about this that he killed his brother and then later led half of the nation in revolt and revolution against David. And so even the best of kings we see, like David, struggle with how to use power, right? One of the truths that we begin to understand is that fallen man cannot handle power. I mean, what would you do if you were king and had unlimited power? I'd like to think I would be a good ruler, but I know my heart pretty well. I'm not sure I would do a whole lot better than David. Lord Acton has made that famous statement, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think that's just part of living in a fallen world. That's part of the vanity that we live in. We just cannot handle power well. And that's what we're going to look at today a little bit in Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And as we look at these verses, we want to ask this question. How do we respond to those in power? How do we respond? And our big idea for today is that God-fearers joyfully submit to governing authority and refuse to be corrupted by power. So let's dive in a little bit. I just want to look at two broad things that, that Kohelet says in these verses about power. The first thing he says is power commands, and the second thing he's going to say is power corrupts. 
And so the first thing is power commands in verses 2 through 6a. Notice verse 2, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, these verses bring us into a king's court, right? Into a place of power. The author Kohelet is presented to us as King Solomon, the son of David. And he references here God's oath to the king. He's probably referring to the covenant that God made between David and his sons, that that he would establish his kingdom forever if his sons would keep the covenant and be faithful to the Lord. Of course, we know this this covenant ultimately was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who was of the line of David. This oath may uh, may also refer to God's covenant to Noah and his sons when they got off the ark and in Genesis chapter 9, God made a covenant with them. He said several things, and one of the things he said in Genesis 9, 6 was this, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God has made man in his own image. And so most see here God establishing human government to punish evil, especially the evil of murder. So in Kohelet's day, the king represented the highest human authority. In our country today, in America, we would recognize the federal government as the highest authority or power that we have to respond to. Now, Kohelet says here that the best thing to do is to obey the king or whoever's in power because then you won't have any trouble. Notice verses 3 through 6. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way, for there is a time and a way for everything. So the idea is pretty straightforward. Don't resist the king. Don't resist those in authority. Don't conspire against them. They're going to do whatever they want because power is in their hands. But in verse 6b, Kohelet begins to turn the corner here a little bit. He shifts his focus. It's a little bit confusing at first, but as we go through verses 6 through 14, we'll see that he begins to expose the corruption of power, the reality that power corrupts. He almost says the exact opposite thing in verse 6 that he says in verse 5. It's kind of hard to pick up in the ESV translation, but notice here in verse 5 he says, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. Now that phrase, no evil thing, could also be translated no trouble. It's the same word that we see in verse 6 where it says, although a man's trouble lies heavy upon him. Same word. Probably would be better to translate it the same in the text. And so he's saying, you know, keep the king's command and you'll know no trouble. And then he shifts and he starts saying, Sometimes man's trouble lies heavy upon him. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, we have to keep reading to kind of understand what's happening. He begins to talk about things, uh, especially the corruption of power, things that cause us trouble. And what we're going to see is Coelet is teaching us here that life is not as simple as obey the government and everything will go great. It's more complex than that. He begins to talk about power and how we are subject to forces more powerful than us that we have no control over, and sometimes that power can be political government power in the hands of wicked people. So he starts in verses 7 and 8 talking about 
our uncertain future, especially in the day of our death. Notice here in verse 7, he does not know what is to be. Who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. This is a theme that's been repeated throughout uh, Ecclesiastes, right? This is one of the weaknesses that we have. We'd like to plan for the future. We'd all like to think that we're going to be, live to be 70 or 80 or maybe more. We like to think of things that we would like to do in the future, maybe with loved ones that we care about. But we have no guarantee of any of this. We have no guarantee that we will be alive tomorrow. This is what we are subject to as mankind. In 8b, he talks about world events like war that people can't escape from. No man has... Or, 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 um, let's see here. Verse yeah, 8b, there is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. War is one of the great evils of mankind, right? It's something that is a tragedy that we get caught up in, and it's usually those who are in power struggling with other people for power. We've observed the war in Ukraine lately. Think about all the thousands and thousands of people who tried to escape as the war was coming upon them. We even hear now that men in Russia are trying to escape the draft in Russia, so they're trying to leave Russia, and the government is making it more difficult for them to escape because they need men in war. And so these are one of the things, this is one of the things, tragic things, thankfully in my lifetime, I haven't been subject to this, but these are one of the tragic things that happen to mankind that are outside our power, that is, things that happen to us we can't control. And then verse 9 introduces the wicked who are corrupted by power. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. There it is, the corruption of power. When men who have power over other men use that power to hurt them. Although power rightfully used protects people, is meant to protect people and to punish evildoers, the wicked use power to hurt others and benefit themselves. And unfortunately, this is more common than we would like to believe. A frustrating and puzzling thing under the sun is that these wicked people are often accepted in holy places among holy people, and they die as heroes. This is what he says in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. The wicked here probably refer to those men who use power over other men to their hurt. And he says they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. This is something that really frustrates Kohelet and all of us, right? This is puzzling, frustrating, hard to accept, hard to understand. Verse 11 identifies a flaw in the justice system that increases evil. Notice this in verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Isn't that interesting? When evil is not quickly punished, what happens? The heart of the children of men is fully set to do evil. Oh, I can get away with it. I'm going to go for it, right? This is evil under the sun. It's not uncommon. It's prevalent. This is why the wicked succeed. This is why the wicked are often praised. And this is how power corrupts. 
because power is to be used to punish the wicked, but instead it is often used by the wicked to protect the wicked. Last week I was in a jury in Milwaukee County. I served on the jury for four days. Uh, we had a case of first-degree reckless homicide, and it was a very difficult case. It was a very uh, troubling case, and unfortunately, at the end of the day, we had a hung jury. We could not come to a decision. We didn't want to put an innocent person in jail for the rest of their life. We didn't want to let a guilty person go free, but we just didn't have enough evidence. And the, um, <clears throat> the, the, the most troubling part about this case was that there this, this murder happened in the city. There was about 10 to 20 men gambling, playing dice on the streets. There was a video taken right before the shooting. And so we, you could see all these guys, you know, gambling in this big circle. And so we know, and then, and then two guys got in a fight. Somebody pulled a gun, shot one man, killed him, shot another guy, injured him for life. And we know that there were at least 10 to 20 people who saw this happen and who know who shot the man and killed him. But nobody was coming forward to testify about it. The police couldn't get people to testify. And we don't know why people didn't want to testify. We could, we could imagine many reasons why they might not. But one thing we know for sure is that the killer was not punished. He got away with it. So all those guys know that they can get away with the same thing. And I don't know if you've realized this, but in the last three years, murders have doubled and tripled in the, in the city of Milwaukee. It's a huge problem. And so this just exemplifies what Kohelet is talking about here. When, when, when evildoing is not punished, it just increases, multiplies evildoing. And then in verse 14, Kohelet repeats for the third time something that we've seen repeatedly in Ecclesiastes that Kohelet finds very troubling. Notice this. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. He says it twice at the beginning, at the end of this verse, right, that this is vanity. This is Havel. This is very troubling. It's incomprehensible to him. Why does this happen? There is corruption, and those in power are not defending the righteous and punishing the wicked. In fact, often it's the opposite. The wicked are being defended, and the righteous are being punished. This is frustrating. This is puzzling. This is vanity under the sun. This is power that corrupts. Now, one of the things we notice spread throughout these verses is that Kohelet is going to give us some wisdom as to how we should respond to power and corruption in our world. And so that's going to be our goads and nails for today. That's going to be our application for today. How do we respond to these realities in our world? And there's four responses to power and corruption that he's going to recommend here. And remember our big idea, it kind of summarizes these four things. God-fearers joyfully submit to governing authority and refuse to be corrupted by power. So, the first response to power and corruption is simply this. Subject yourself to governing authorities. As he says in verse 2, keep the king's command. This idea, this teaching is repeated in the New Testament consistently. It's in 1 Peter teaches this, and Romans 13 is maybe one of the clearest passages that teaches this, where Paul says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, 
For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. This is consistent with the first six verses here of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And Christians are to be known as the best citizens who do not resist authority, but obey the law and do what is good. Most of the time, this will lead to praise from the governing authority and lead to us living peaceful lives. As Christians, we should not be known for involvement in insurrections, revolutions, conspiracies, tax evasions, or corruption of any kind. That's the first response. The second response is fear God. God fearers joyfully submit to governing authority and refuse to be corrupted by power. Verse 12 through 13 describe this here, and, and remember, this is, this, uh, these verses come right after verse 11 where he talked about the multiplication of evil because evil is not punished speedily. So what should we do? How do we respond to this? Notice verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, <clears throat> Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. This is the consistent teaching of Ecclesiastes. This is the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, to fear God. And so to fear God is to recognize that there is a higher authority than human government. It is God, the highest authority, that has set human, human government into positions of power, right? And in the Old Testament, the first requirement for rulers were to be that they were to be people who feared God. This primarily meant that they would rule according to God's revealed law as summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, we don't see that today very much, do we? Fearing God is not a requirement for modern political candidates. In fact, if you fear God openly, it might be a detriment to your political campaign, right? Um, and that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate because this is what keeps rulers from becoming wicked. This is when someone does not fear God, when they think they are the ultimate power and there's no one that they're accountable to above them, it leads to corruption. In America, it seems like the legal theory that is prevalent today is that right and wrong are determined by whatever the majority believes. And there's great effort to sway public opinion and majority opinion to establish law. We've seen in our recent history, long-term traditional laws can be changed if the majority of people get their leaders voted into positions of power. In this changing moral environment, the Bible says that there is an eternal law that comes from an eternal God, and it is best to fear God and keep his commandments. This can become very difficult when evil is not speedily punished and mankind becomes more and more corrupt. Kohelet acknowledges that the wicked do often die as heroes and may prolong their lives, but he says here in verse 12 very clearly, it will not be well with the wicked, but it will be well with those who fear God. Even though this is one of the tense parts of Ecclesiastes, it's almost contradictory, right? 
He's like, yeah, I know there are some weak, wicked people who die as heroes and they live a long time, but I know it's not going to be well with them because they do not fear God. It's one of those statements that we see Kohelet's faith, right? He's a man of faith. He's making statements that he doesn't necessarily see in the world before him, but he believes that they are true. And I think the fear of God is very similar to what we call in the New Testament faith. What is faith? Hebrews 11.6 says, 11, says this, Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. That's the first step, right? Believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Sometimes, fearing God requires us to disobey human authorities. We see this in Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. Peter and John were proclaiming Christ. They were brought before the authorities, and the authorities told them clearly, stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. And so how did Peter and John respond to this? Well, they said, Acts 4, 18, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of the things we have seen and have heard. They had a clear command from Jesus that they were to be his witnesses. They were to speak about him. Now the authorities were telling him, them not to speak about Jesus, and they said, we've got to obey God rather than you, right? We have a higher authority. And so we subject ourselves to human authority in all cases, except when they command us to do something contrary to God's commands. Then we fear God and obey him above human authority. Now, granted, this kind of situation is really rare in America because we do have religious freedom. This is something that is very common in other parts of the world, right? There are many places in the world today where it is illegal to be a Christian. It is illegal to follow Jesus. And many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world do suffer at the hands of wicked power. And this is part of the call to follow Christ for mo most Christians throughout the world, right? Just as Jesus suffered innocently, so sometimes we will as well. 1 Peter 2.20 tells us this, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. But let me just pause here for a minute and let's talk about our situation in America for a minute. We recognize that it's, it's much worse in other parts of the world, but in America, when we choose civil, civil disobedience, we should be sure that there is a clear command from God that we are following to resist governing authority. And I would argue that doesn't happen very often. Most issues in our political climate are not quite so clear as it was for John and Peter in their day, right? There are many examples we could talk about. Let me just bring up one, the COVID vaccine. Now, for some of us here, we may think that the COVID vaccine was a modern medical miracle that saved millions of lives. For others, we might say, hey, it was a, it was a good, sincere effort to do good that maybe fell short. And for some of us, it's it's a money-making conspiracy that did more harm than good, right? I think all three of these perspectives and probably more are represented here in our group this morning. But I've been studying the Bible a long time, and I'm pretty sure there's no clear command in the Bible 
about the COVID vaccine. Does someone want to get vaccinated and think it's a great thing? Great. Does someone else not want to get it? Think it might not be a good thing? That's fine, right? This isn't something that we have to get upset about. There are many types of these gray areas where we as Christians need to be gracious to one another and to all people. Let's be careful not to pull the God says card out too quickly. And let's be careful that we never pull it out unless God has clearly said something. So that leads us to the third response to power and corruption, and that is be joyful. God fears joyfully submit to governing authority and refuse to be corrupted by power. Notice verse 15, and this is a theme that we've heard consistently throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Once we understand the reality we face under the sun, that authority is necessary to punish evil and that authority is often corrupted by evil itself, the question is how should we respond to this situation? Now there's many possibilities, right? In our current context, people seem to get angry and fight a lot. I don't know if you've noticed, but people get really upset about politics. It often calls forth the strongest emotions in people. And politicians often manipulate people's fears and emotions to gain their loyalty. And people often devote their lives to the political process. Now, Kohelet, I think, is recommending here something different. He recommends joy. In fact, he says there's nothing better to do than to be joyful. If you find that your political views are stealing your joy and damaging your relationships, especially with other believers, you may need to re-examine your political views. As Christians, our hope is not in our political leaders or in our political system. As 1 Peter 1.13 says, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is, right? And so we can find joy in looking forward to that. And as we learn to submit to our authorities today, even corrupt as they may be, we learn how to fear God, we can find joy. This leads us to the last response that can help us find this joy as well. Don't think you can figure it all out. Trust God. Verses 16 through 17. Again, we come to a refrain that we have heard several times before in Ecclesiastes, and now he applies it to this situation. Notice verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is, again, we've seen this over and over again in Ecclesiastes, right? God is doing something, but we are unable to fully understand it. And I think this is especially true in the political realm. We don't have all the answers. We don't have to have all the answers. As Christians, we shouldn't say that we do have all the answers, right? And certainly not in the political realm. There's a lot of confusing stuff out there. We don't have to say that we know them, know the answers to everything. 
And this verse gives us insight into what Kohelet means by the word Hevel, which is translated vanity over and over again. As I've said throughout this, this study, we have to let Kohelet define what he means by the word Hevel. It literally means vapor or mist. What's he trying to say? What's he trying to get at? Well, I think this, this refrain helps us understand that, that what he's trying to say is there are things that are fuzzy, that are foggy, that we can't quite see. They're puzzling, right? They're enigmatic. I don't think this word Havel means meaningless. Some translations you'll see will translate it as meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. I don't think that's what he means in, in, in Ecclesiastes. Even in these verses here, he says God is at work, right? Throughout Ecclesiastes, God is at work. Things aren't meaningless. God is doing something. It's just that we can't understand it. Maybe the best translation would be puzzling. Puzzling, puzzling. Everything is puzzling, right? This reminds us again that human wisdom has its limits. And if we're going to find joy in the havel of life, we will need to trust God. As verse 17 here reminds us, God is working. We cannot fully understand what he's doing and why he allows the things he does, but joy can be found in trusting that he has made everything beautiful in its time. That's what Solomon believes. That's what Kohelet believes from chapter 3, verse 11. That's a key verse in Ecclesiastes. It's the assumption behind everything. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's working a work. And we today have seen more of his work than Kohelet did in the days that he wrote Ecclesiastes. In fact, several hundred years after Kohelet wrote Ecclesiastes, David and Solomon's greatest descendant, Jesus, was revealed as the one king who could be trusted with power, the one who uses power not for himself, but in service to others. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 20, 25. Notice he says Jesus called his disciples to him and he said this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus, we have the one who has ultimate power. He is very God of very God. But what did he do with that power? How does he use that power? For himself? No, he uses it to serve us. This is what Philippians chapter 2 is all about. Paul says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That phrase, a thing to be grasped, it could be translated, he didn't count his equality with God something to use for his own self-advantage. Right? He wasn't about himself. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has been given all power because he alone can handle it. 
He's demonstrated that he can. He uses it for the benefit of others, not for himself. This is the one that we follow. This is the way that we should live in the church as well. Any authority that we in the, exercise in the church at all should not be for the benefit of individual people, but for the benefit of others. That's the way of Christ. And that's what the, the bread and cup represent to us this morning. The body and blood of our King, the one who uses all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who could use his ultimate power to do whatever he wants, but chose to use this power to serve in the humblest way imaginable. He is worthy of all worship, all honor, all glory, 